Lord, we ask you to be with us as we look at your word. We thank you that you care for us so much and that you've given us your word so that we can learn about you. Guide and lead us as we study in Jesus' name. Amen. Job chapter 16, starting at verse 1. This is Job's answer to Eliphaz. Eliphaz was basically telling him that the elders all tell us things, you know, and Job, you know, you're disagreeing with what the elders say, you know, why don't you just confess to what you were doing? So here's Job's answer to Eliphaz. Then Job answered and said, I have heard many such things. Miserable comforts are, are you all. Shall vain words have an end, or what emboldens you that, that you answered? I also could speak as you do if your soul were in my soul's stead. I could heap up words against you and shake my head at you. But I would strengthen you with my mouth, and with the moving of my lips would assuage your grief. Although I speak, my grief is not assuaged, and though I forbear, what am I eased? But now he hath made me weary. You have made desolate all my company, and you have filled me with wrinkles, which is the witness against me, and my leanness rising up in me bears witness to my face. He tears me with his wrath, who hates me. He gnashes me with his teeth. Mine enemy sharpens his eyes upon me. They have gaped upon me with their mouth. They have smitten me with, upon the cheek reproachfully. They have gathered themselves together against me. So I want to stop there for just a moment. <laughs> so here's Job's answer. He says, you have many, I have heard many such words. Okay, in other words, you know, all that you're saying, I've heard. So what's he doing? He's agreeing with Eliphaz. I've heard all the ancient words. I know what you're talking about. And you know, there's a danger in saying that. I mean, Job is saying this in defense of himself, but there's a danger in saying, I know what you're telling me, especially if you're not living it out. All right? Because usually somebody's trying to remind you of something you need to, to learn. <laughs> and he's basically saying, I've heard it all before. Very dangerous. I know he's responding to a very negative attack, but we want to be careful with that kind of statement. Uh, we've all either said it or heard it. I've heard it a million times. When are you going to tell me something new? Job's coming dangerously close to saying this. He goes, I've heard these words before. I know what you're going to say. And then he says, miserable comforters you are. Uh, and literally, this word is not just poor, but it is very, intru very intrusive. It's wicked, grievous on it. And he goes, you are not just, in other words, they're not just miserable comforters. They are being wicked and grievous. They're making them worse. All right. Uh, and so this is a statement that he's making. He's going, I've heard all this before. You're terrible comforters. Uh, and he goes, shall vain words have an end? In other words, should empty, windy words come to a cease? He goes, you're just blowing, blowing smoke in my face, you know, type deal. You know, you're not, you're not giving me any comfort. You're not giving me anything. You're just repeating words that you have heard others say. And there's a, that does happen. You hear it all the time. Well, well, you know, Dr. Phil says this, Dr. Oz says this, you know, uh, Freud says this, you know, I don't, I haven't got a clue what they're talking about, but this is what they say. And I'm going to tell it to you. And he's saying, you're just speaking empty words. They don't mean anything. You're not applicable. And we need to be careful if we're doing that. If we don't know what it is we're talking about, what others say is kind of irrelevant. And unfortunately, there are many educated people that do just that. They give you all kinds of empty words that have no meaning to them. And I'm getting to the place, and I've even been reading lots of articles, that there's a lot of people that are not caring about college degrees and everything because they just don't believe anything that they're saying. You know, they're educated, supposedly, but they don't seem to know anything. And I've seen that over and over. I'm not blanketing all of them. There are people that really know something. When I went to college, I liked the ones that had, had been in business and were teaching. The ones that had been academic all their life, I didn't really care what they had to say. They knew nothing about what was going on. And the same thing when I watch news broadcasts and everything, and they bring some scholar in who's never done a day of life in business, but he's been studying business all of his life, and he's going to talk about business. He's never been a politician. He's going to tell us about politics. He's never been in, in court one day in his life, and he's going to tell us about the law. 
And it's like, I don't care what those guys say. And yet our world is geared toward these windy windbags <laughs> that have nothing worth listening to. And this is what Job's saying. I've heard all your words. When are these vain, empty, wind, windy words going to be done? When are you going to get down to something that is real? Uh, and, and then he goes, and what emboldens you that you should answer? You know, and literally this word is, what sickness do you have in your answer? Okay, it's not just, why do you feel like you can answer, but you're causing sickness with your answer. And I've seen this and I've heard this where somebody makes people worse off when they get done talking to them than when they started. So he go and you're speaking empty, empty, worthless words and, and your response is, to me is a sick response. <laughs> he's, he's being kind of aggressive here to, to Eliphaz. And then he goes, you know what? I could speak, if, I, if you were in my place, I could say the same things to you. And this is his point. He goes, I would never have done what you have done to me. And I'm assuming that it is probably true because God's testimony of Job was that he was a righteous man that hated evil. So I don't believe that he would have attacked somebody that was suffering. And that's not, you know, as for us as Christians, our job is to build up and edify, not attack and destroy. Now, that sometimes means, yes, we're going to encourage people or even tell them that they're sinning but we knew it in a loving manner not to destroy and it's tough to do believe me i know it's tough to do because as soon as you say that something is a sin you get attacked as a you know for attacking them now, and all you're doing is telling them what god says and you know as long as it's loving we can get away with it to a degree but they're not going to like it anymore their sin has been called out they're going to look at us as if we're attacking them and the same thing when we teach or I teach or anybody and I say such and such is a sin or something and I challenge people to live God's way, they have two choices. They can either take it as that challenge to repent and go God's way or they go, that pe preacher's always pre preaching at me and attacking me and I'm not going there anymore. And people take both routes. And I understand my toes have been stepped on, my pride has been stepped on more than once when I've been in, in churches and listening to teaching or just reading the Bible. Uh, so it really does come down. Job says, you know, I could speak just as you do if, if we're, our places were switched, if my soul was in your, in your soul's place. All right? Because if you were in my place, I could, I could be saying the same things you say. You know, if, our, if we had been, if our roles had been, I could be attacking you just like you're attacking me. And, you know, it's kind of, I could heap words against you and shake my head at you. You know, I could be, <laughs> you know, which is what they were doing to him. He says, I could be just like you if our places were in, in it. But the word in verse 5, but. But I would strengthen you with my mouth. And with the moving of my lips, I would assuage your assuage you or give you strength or, uh, or secure you all right so he says if i was in your place i would be comforting you i'd be strengthening you i'd be trying to help you out all right uh, how he would have helped him out i don't know but he wouldn't have been criticizing them like they do and you know we can't help everybody out of what their their hardships but we can at least encourage them you know hey you know i don't know what god's got, what's happening to you but god is on your side he loves you in spite of what's going on what can I do to help you? How can I help you get out of what you're at? None of these guys ever once said, you know what, Job, I know it's tough. You know, let me give you one of my shepherds for a while and I'll give you three or four sheep to help get started back up and you can pay me back once, once it gets started. You know, I know that, you, I know that you're having a hard time. Let me, let me get a doctor in here and I'll pay for the doctor. None of them offered any real help to him. Matter of fact, none of them ever said that God loves you still. All right. We're not seeing it from them. They're just seeing, Job, what did you do? You know, how, what did you do to deserve this terrible thing that has happened to you? And we need to be very careful with our words when somebody's suffering. I've told you all, you know, I learned very hard where the Romans 8.28 is not a good thing to say to somebody when they're, when they're going through a hard time. 
because I had my head torn off, you know, just about torn off because I said it to somebody in the middle of their pain when I'm in my, in my 20s because it's always a great verse for me. And because they didn't believe it in the first place, they were ready to, you know, rip me in shreds because there's no way that this is going to be good. And I go, whoa, I'm sorry you don't believe the word of God. I'm going to back off. But I learned a good lesson. What comforts me was not going to comfort them. All I could do in their case is say, you know what, God loves you. I know you don't feel like he does right now, but he loves you and he's got a plan for you. That when you're in a hard place, that doesn't go over well, but at least it's not a criticism. Uh, Job has been criticized and he's saying, all I wanted you to do is come in and say, you know, encourage me, strengthen me. You know, let me know that God still loves me in spite of what I'm going through and I feel like God's not loving me and that he's attacking me. You know, I understand he's attacking me. I don't know, understand why he's attacking me, but I'm, I, I'm being attacked. And so his whole statement here is, be kind. <laughs> I, would have, I would have been kind if I was in your place. Now, we don't know for sure. I'm sure Job would have because of the testimony of God. But he's saying, I would have been kind if, it was in, if the roles had been reversed. He goes, though I speak, my grief is not assuaged, and though I forbear... What am I eased? And this is what he's telling them. Because one of their criticisms they've had is, Job, you keep complaining, quit complaining. And he's basically saying, though, hey, even uh, in my grief, I speak my grief, and I'm not secure. And even if I didn't speak, I forbear, I don't speak, I'm not at ease. Because it doesn't matter what I'm doing. Nothing matters. And isn't that how we usually feel when everything seems to be going wrong? Doesn't matter what I do, I just can't get out of what I'm doing. And he has nobody helping him saying, you know what, Job, you know, let's, let's help you in some way. Let's help you. It's supposed to be his friends, right? <laughs> friends, disciples, however you want to look at it, they're supposed to be kind to him, and they're definitely not. And, you know, he's saying, you know, I taught you, but I, if we were in this place, I would have been at least encouraging you. I would have been struggle now from their perspective maybe they think they're being encouraging you know Job, all you got to do is admit what you've done wrong and god's going to forgive you they're probably doing it for the right re- you know kind of in the right right reason and it is easy to say the wrong things and do the wrong things with people because what will help one person won't help another so i'm not going to i'm not coming in and saying that these guys were purposely trying to rip 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 job apart all right. I think they were saying, you know, Job, you know, kind of like his wife, curse God and die. You know, hey, you're so you're suffering so bad. Why don't you just curse God and get it over with? And I think that was her, you know, purpose. Job, I am I am tired of seeing you suffer. Why don't you just curse God and let him kill you and and get it all over with? Well, because he was in pain. Yeah, no, I know. If you really love somebody, you don't want to see them suffering. Which is the whole motivation behind the euthanasia movement. You know, grandpa and grandma suffering so bad, they're eating up the, the family's inheritance. I mean, they might as well just end their life in, and be done with because of what pain they're in and how they don't like what it is. Now, I don't agree with it in any way, shape, or form, but, you know, I think that was the motivation behind his wife. You know, my husband's suffering so much, he's lost everything, and now he's lost his health, and it doesn't look like it's ever going to change. Why does he just curse God and, and be done with it? I think she did it for the right reasons. Now, I could be wrong completely. I think his friends are trying to help him as best they know how. But they have no compassion. And this is the problem with many Christians when they come in to help, try to help people. The lack of compassion that they have when they're trying to minister to people. I've heard so many people, they're going, well, how do I convince a, a Muslim that they're wrong or a, a homosexual that they're wrong or you know whatever it might be and I'm going what difference does it make what their sin is pick a sin that they know is a sin don't pick the sin that they don't that they're gonna have trouble with I'm not worried about the homosexuality of a person they they're a liar a thief whatever it might be I can get some other other sin that they're not going to be so defensive about get them saved and then let the Holy Spirit convict them of their sin sin on so i can be kind and ignore the other ones even though i'm not going to say your your homosexuality is okay or your your being a muslim is okay or whatever it might be i'm not going to say it's okay but i'm also going to need to attack it because that's not what i'm doing i need to be kind to them and say 
Where is a sin that we can agree with that you have? Where is it that we can work from to move forward? These guys never did that with Job. Job, you're bad. We're going to figure out what you've done wrong, and we're going to get you to admit what you've done wrong so that you can repent. They never came in with any kind of love, any kind of attitude of love on it. Uh, and Job saying, hey, it doesn't matter whether I speak or don't speak. I'm not, I'm not happy. When I was sitting here just scratching at my, scratching at my wounds with no, not talking to anybody, I was not happy. I was still in pain. Now that I'm speaking, I'm not, I'm not secure and, and strong. It doesn't matter whether I'm speaking or not speaking. And this is where he's at. He's, he's miserable. Rightfully so, I guess. <laughs> As he goes from it. He goes, You have filled me with wrinkles, which is a witness against me. Now this is one of those things that was kind of an interesting statement you know, that I read. And nobody really knows completely what it's all about. All right. Uh, you have seized or held me with wrinkles, and I'm not sure what it was, because nothing, the word wrinkles means wrinkles. Now, was he saying that he has been so worried that he got the worry lines and stuff that people have? I don't know. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe his skin is, you know, dried out and wrinkled or something. We don't know for what it is, but he's literally saying that he has been filled, and which is a witness against me, and my leanness rises up in me, bearing witness to my face, his, and leanness is this, you know, emptiness that he has. He feels that God has abandoned him. And this is a tough place to be. When we're in the midst of a test, where it seems like God abandons us. And, this is, and when I say the word test, that is really what it is about. When God tests us, he does what every good instructor does and says, I can't help you during the test. It's your test. So he steps back, and we have to go through the test with what we know and hold on to what we know. And that time is so interesting because we look up and go, God, it feels like you've abandoned me, and all he's doing is standing over in the corner watching to see how we're going to do the test. When I was training managers, the hardest thing for me as a man, training manager was to let that trainee run my store. When, they weren't, when I wasn't absolutely sure that they were ready to run it, well, they, I felt that they were ready, but not, not completely. And you're always sitting back going, how far am I going to let them go before I step in? And you really did have to let them almost make a mess to see what they were going to do when they got into the mess to see if they were going to fix it. And you're sitting there making all kinds of plans on, all right, when they fall apart, this is what I'm going to do, and I'm going to move this first, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this, so they don't destroy my store. <laughs> God does the same thing with us when we're in that life. He puts us in a test, and we're looking, God, where, where are you? I'm, I don't know what's going on. I'm having trouble. Where are you? <laughs> he says, you're in the middle of the test. What, what have we taught you? When we're in that middle of the test, God is saying, are you going to hold on to what, you, what you've been taught? And I've said it, and I, the first one I ever heard, heard say was Chuck Smith, you know, don't forget in the darkness what you learned in the light. God puts us in the darkness to say, I told you this, we taught you this when it was easy. Now that we're in the middle of the test, are you going to apply what you were taught? Or are you just going to throw it away because you think it doesn't work? And that is our test all the time. When we walk in the darkness, are we going to hold on to what we say we believe when it's easy? And that is the tough thing because we learn things that says, well, yeah, God, I, I really agree with you. I can trust you. All right, let's see if you trust me when Satan comes against you with a lot of trials. And then all of a sudden, well, I don't know if I trust him, God. Yeah, this is, this is, what, what's the problem? You said you trusted me. You said you believed me. You said, you know, you said this, you know, why aren't you believing it when the trial starts? And Job is in a place like this. He's been training people. He's been rocking with God, and now he's in a really tight spot. And his tight spot was bad. I, you know, I, I can understand Job had to have been quite a righteous man to be going through this much trial. And then God puts him into a place to say, are you really going to truly believe what you believe? And he does that to us all the time. And this is what Job is going through. Do you believe? Are you going to believe? Verse 9, he tears me in his wrath, who hates me. He gnashes upon me with his teeth. Mine enemy sharpens his eye upon me. 
Now I'm kind of interested in this statement because I want to know who the he is. Mine enemy sharpeneth my his eyes upon me, that that wouldn't be God. He wouldn't call God his enemy, would he? In this point in time, possibly. He very good, well could be calling God his enemy at this point in time, because he feels that God is his enemy. Yeah, that he's turned his back on him. Right, and we don't, at this point in time, we don't know the level of the theology for demonic activity and, and, and Satan at this point in time. So he only sees that God doesn't, isn't helping him, so maybe God is angry at him and his enemy. We don't know for sure exactly where this is at. So, but anyone could be, whoever it is, he, he tears at me, he hates or has animosity toward me. He gnashes his teeth at, on on me or grinds his teeth on, on me and sharpens his eye, his eyes upon me, the gaze on it that he has, that hard iron gaze. We've all seen it. You know, moms tend to have this gaze that, you know, all they have to do is look at you and it's like, <laughs> I've done something. Mom didn't say anything, but I, <laughs> I feel that look. <laughs> you know, moms have that look. I don't know how they get it, but they have that look. And this one's deeper than that. You know, this is one I can, I can feel the hatred. And sometimes you may have seen that. You know, there's the hatred that somebody might have for you that is visible in the look. Oh, yeah, I've experienced that too. They haven't said anything or even done anything, but that look, pure disgust and hate, is what he's talking about here. Experienced it a few times in my lifetime when I'm going, especially hard when you don't know the person and it's just, what did I do to deserve such a, such a look, you know, such bitterness just from your look? And this is what he's talking about. Could he be talking about God? Yeah, his problem is that he's feeling that God is the one that's doing it. I don't know that he understands that there's an opponent out there that's opposing him. He just thinks... I've been good, so it has to be God that's letting this happen. And yes, he was right. God let it happen. He just doesn't, he has the wrong enemy in mind. And this is for us. When bad things are happening, we need to recognize who the enemy is. Because if we don't recognize who the enemy is, we're fighting the wrong battle. If I'm fighting God or the tools that are being used against me rather than Satan, I'm fighting the wrong battle. What if he just has no idea? He could be this, this, or this, so I, that's how I feel. Ultimately, who it is it? Who is your enemy always? Unless you've done something to deserve the, to deserve the consequences, the enemy is always going to be Satan. Yeah, the enemy is always Satan, but I'm sure that I've done something. It may not, that may not be the reason that I'm hurting, or whatever it is, you know. But the, I think there's always something that you've done, always. Oh, you've got to be careful about that because that's denying the fact that God has forgiven us and, and given us grace and mercy. This is what I say. When we, whenever we're going through a hard time, our first step is, have I done something that deserves this? Without getting deep down, because you're right, we are deceitfully wicked. And, you, know, you know, we are corrupt and evil at our core. So yes, no matter what happens to us, technically, we deserve anything that happens to us. But... That is not what's happening in most cases. God's not going to say, well, because I know that you sinned three, three months ago, this is what's happening to you. Because I know you're going to sin two days from now, this is what's happening to you. We look at it and say, God, have I literally been disobedient? And we know if we've been disobedient or not. I cannot disobey God without being convicted in my, soul, in, in my spirit, ever. When I do something wrong, I get convicted, and then I know that anything that's anything happening to me is because of the conviction that God put on me because I didn't repent if I didn't repent. You really need to figure out what is... But the other side of this is we need to quit thinking in Freudian, Freudian psychology that says, because this happened to me, this is happening to me. God loves us. Always. He loves us. And we need to start resting in his love and in his mercy rather than trying to find reasons for the bad things that are happening to us. We don't, because that's not what we're taught to do. We're taught Freudian psychology that I'm this way because mom did this or grandpa did this. My girlfriend gave, you know, did this to me or my boyfriend gave, did this to me or my best friend did this to me or my coach did this to me. Therefore, this is who I am and I just can't help it. We have to get rid of that mentality.
and this is what the scriptures tell us, when we get saved, we become a new creation in Christ. The old has passed away. Behold, all things are made new. That means all that past garbage that does have influence in our life is gone. I have a new way of thinking, a new master who has taken all that garbage upon himself and says, this is the way you're going to live from this point on. And the more we try to dwell in the past, the more we find the reasons for why I am the way I am. I am so angry all the time because I'm angry, Irish, you know, and the Irish are always angry. You know, I'm a, I'm a skinflint because I'm Scottish, you know, it's whatever it might be, you know, all the different characteristics of that. But all of that does, like you say, is an excuse. I can't help what I'm doing because my past motivates me to be who I am today. I am a thief because mom and dad were thieves. They taught me how to be thieves. Grandma and grandpa were thieves, so therefore that's all I know how to do. I'm a drunk because five generations of my family been a drunk and that's all I know how to do. Excuses, excuses, excuses. We need to get away from those types of excuses and say, I believe in God and God has made me a new creation. I'm going to live in that new creation. And then we start really starting to understand what has God done for us. This is why we taught the, the 50 things that happened to us at the moment of salvation. I am a totally new person when I get saved. The more I understand it, the better off I am. I am sealed. I am forgiven. I am adopted. I am placed in the family of God. I am, I am sanctified. I am justified. You know, uh, I am placed in a royal family. I've got all the benefits of Christ. All the things that we have and say, if I truly start believing who I am in Christ, it doesn't matter what happened in the past. I'm free of the past, but I have to start believing the truth of what God says rather than what I feel. Maybe that's the key part. We don't really... We don't believe. We don't truly believe what God says. I mean, seriously, how do you, how do you get to that point? I mean, is it, is it a decision? Mm-hmm. It's deciding to choose to believe. In spite of what my emotions tell me, I believe. How do I know that God loves me? He told me so. I mean, he shows us all the time with all these different people in the book. I, I teach people, so how do I teach somebody that 2 plus 2 is 4? They choose to believe that 2 plus 2 is 4, or they can sit there and argue all day long, I don't believe that 2 plus 2, somehow prove it to me. The only problem is the only way I can prove to you that 2 plus 2 is 4 is to take you into high advanced mathematics that you can't learn until you believe that 2 plus 2 is 4 in the first place. I mean, there are proofs that 2 plus 2 is 4. But to get there, we have to get into calculus and advanced number theory to get you to believe that 2 plus 2 is 4 that you don't understand when you're trying to learn 2 plus 2 is 4. So there is times when we just have to believe that God loves us, that he's changed us, that he's made us a new creation. And then, once we start believing it, then he can take us deeper and deeper into the relationship that says, here you go. This is where you're at. Starts with pure belief. The gospel message is pure and simple and easy to believe as long as you don't try to intellectualize it. Start with faith, you start with belief. And then you learn the reasons. I have been walking with God long enough that now I can go through the reasons, but part of the reasons are because of what I've experienced. I know that God loves me. I know that God cares for me. I know that he changed me when I, was, when I got saved. And I've been changed ever since. And I'm getting to the place where I know him well enough that I can start saying, yes, now I understand. And I don't, I don't pass all my troubles. Don't get me wrong. I, never, I don't pass all my tests. But this is where we're at. Job doesn't fully... Job is going through a really hard time, which shows that his righteousness was very high. God would not have put him through the test that he put him through if he wasn't ready for the test. And in the middle of the test, there's oftentimes that panic and that distress that you don't, don't feel him in there. And this is the most important thing, and I've been saying this a lot this last month. We cannot live by our feelings and our emotions. We must live by the truth of God. 
It's a very simple statement, and a lot of people say it, and it is a true place. God said it, I believe it. And that settles it. No matter what I argue, whatever I think, doesn't matter. God says, I love you. God, I sure don't feel like you love me. Look at all the bad stuff. God says, I love you. I don't feel, I love you. I don't feel it, I love you. You know what? I think, God, I think I'm going to believe you love me. And then the feelings start coming along behind it. And this is what's very important. Who is the enemy is not what we're looking at at that moment. The enemy is the enemy of our soul, Satan, ultimately. Job does not know the enemy, the enemy that he should be looking at is Satan because Satan in the very first couple chapters said, hey, if you did this, he's, gonna, he's, gonna, he's not going to follow you. He doesn't know that Satan is the enemy. All he knows is his friends are being miserable counselors and they're making him feel worse. God seems to have turned his back on him and he's not holding on to the truth. We need to be in the word, know the truth, and say, I am going to believe the truth no matter what. And that's critical. No matter what, I'm going to believe God's word. And then the test will always come to say, do you truly believe? This is why Romans 8.28 is so good, you know, so big to me. When I go through hard times, I'm going, God, I don't understand it, but you say it's going to work for good. I don't see how it can, but I'm going to believe what you say. I'm going to believe that you've got this, you've got a plan, even though I can't see it. Doesn't make it any easier to go through, but at least I know somebody else is in charge. God, I know you, you love me, even though I feel miserable and like nobody likes me, but I know that you love me. Even though I don't feel like you love me right now, I know that you love me. When I can grab hold of that truth, it helps. When I know that greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world, and I'm going through a hard time, and it feels like I'm being beat up, and that God has abandoned me, and I'm falling down. I'm going, God, you said greater is you. you know, greater is the one that's in me, and that's you. I'm going to trust you. It's so important to just grab hold of the word of God and say, God, I trust you. The longer we fight God on the truth, the longer we go through the trial. And I've shared with you, there was a time I was fighting God, and I went through six years of trial. And when I finally gave up, it ended just about that fast. Within a week, the whole thing had gone. Six years of fighting. God doesn't lose. If you want to fight God for six years, you can be Jacob fighting, the, wrestling with the angel all night long and lose. Or you can just surrender and say, God, I give in to what you want all comes down to do I believe what he says or am I going to fight what he says and you can fight and fight and fight and fight and fight and God doesn't move you to the next lesson until you pass the first lesson he is not the public school system that you can graduate without knowing how to read or do math because you just move up each year God says okay you didn't want to learn this lesson so here we go oh you haven't learned that lesson here you go you haven't learned that lesson here you go uh, I'm, are you tired of the lesson yet? Uh, he, he, he has plenty of patience. He'll keep doing the same lesson over and 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 over again until we finally learn. And all of it really does come down to do I believe God's word? Truly believe. It starts by faith. Sometimes that's all I can do is, is walk in faith. But as I walk in faith and say, God, I just believe you because you said it. I don't, I, I don't see it. I don't understand it. And then slowly we get to see that it's true. I have absolutely no problem with Romans 8.28 because God has lived it out in my life so many times that everything that has happened to me has been for some good. Sometimes I don't understand it. Sometimes I do. The ones I don't understand, I'm going, okay, God, I don't understand this one, but this, this, and this was for my good or for good. I believe this one's going to be for good. Do I believe his word? And this is a critical thing. I must believe his word. It's all true. And I've said this over and over again. Every word in the Bible, every promise in the Bible is true or it's worthless. And I fully believe it. Now, I'm still being tested and tried on many of them, but, you know, it's, I do believe that there, and usually it comes down to God. I just believe it. I don't understand it, but I believe it. 
I believe that you love me. I believe that I'm sanctified. I believe that I'm kept. I believe that you're, that you're my strength. I believe you're my strong tower. I believe that you're going to keep me from the enemy. And the more we do that, the more we believe is truth, the better off we are. The more we want to fight it, the harder our life gets. Because we're going to be fighting over and over and over again the same problem. And we just have to get to the place where we say, God, I surrender. How do we do it? We surrender. Yeah, I've had been asked that question, well, how do you surrender? Well, it's very easy to surrender. You choose to do it. And my example is if the police were outside that door and said, come out with your hands up, we have two choices. We come out with our hands up, or we go, come and get me, coppers, you know, <laughs> and they'll win. You know, it's one of the things we're taught out at the prison. That the, they're not worried about the, the inmates doing anything really violent. They tear the place apart. They just stand back, let them tear the place apart, and come in with, with the more advanced weapons and subdue them. They're not going anywhere. They've got two gates to get through, and if they're really that rioting, there's going to be a whole ring of ring of uh, law enforcement around the prison. They're not going anywhere. When God is challenging us, we surrender. Or we can sit there and try to fight. Have the tear gas lobbed in and have the rubber bullets shot at us and be in pain for not surrendering. But eventually God's going to win. He's not worried about us going anywhere. Where can we go to get out of his, his sight, out of his presence? So it really does come down to just truly choosing to believe and then surrendering to that belief. Now, is that easy to do? Not necessarily. It's a choice. And it goes against what we want to do as human beings. It goes against our pride to surrender to, even to God because we want to be in charge. What's the greatest sin that's out there is pride. Why did Satan leave, get kicked out of heaven? Because of his pride. Why did Adam and Eve eat that fruit because of the pride. They wanted to be like God. You know, over and over again, pride gets in the way. Pride gets into our way of surrendering to God even though we know that he's true. And we just have pride issues. So that's where we're at with all of this. Verse 10. They have gaped upon me with their mouth. They have smitten me upon my cheek reproachfully. They have gathered themselves together against me. God has delivered me to the ungodly and turned me over to the hands of the wicked. I was at ease, but he, but he has broken me asunder. He has taken me by my neck and shaken me to pieces and set me up for his mark. His archers compass me round about and cleaves my reins asunder and does not spare. He pours out my gull upon the ground. He breaks, he breaks me with breach upon breach. He runs upon me like a giant." All right, so this is where he's very indicating that he is looking at God as his enemy. All right, this is part of his problem is he's looking at that wrong enemy we talked about. Uh, he says, they have gaped, opened their mouth at me, you know, gaped at me, open mouth, you know, oh, what's going on type thing, you know, it's the, on this. They have smitten me on my neck and reproachfully they have gathered themselves against me. And this is the kind of thing he's looking at his friends, you know, you've gaping at me, you're opening your mouth, you're smiting me, would you just show some tender, loving care? His friends were not showing that to him at all. They were judgmental. Uh, I was listening to, a, I have an artist that I listen to and he's given this story and he goes, one of the lines in this song goes, you, there's no need to be kind when you know that you're right. This, is his, this, this was the line he attributed to, the, to his friends. You know, we know we're right, we don't have to be kind to you. Have we ever dealt with somebody that way? I know that I'm right, so I don't have to be kind to you because you're going, you're going to be admitting that you've done wrong. We want to be careful about that. And this is Job's argument of going, you guys are, you're not even being kind to me. You're not being nice. What is going on? Why are you acting this way? Uh, and then he, then he goes, God has delivered me to the ungodly and turned me over to their hands of the wicked. Now, this is a true statement, though he doesn't know it. Uh, not quite as bad. God hasn't totally delivered him over. But God did say, Satan, you can do this, but this is your limits. Job does not know that Satan has limits. All he knows is he feels like he's been totally turned over to an enemy that is tearing him to pieces. He doesn't know that his life cannot be taken. All he knows is everything else is gone. 
And he wants to die. He wants to die and can't die, and he doesn't even understand that. He's probably his prayer is, God, just take me home. I'm tired of all this. And I've heard many people state that statement. And that's where Job's at right now. I, I'm there, everything's going wrong. Everything's going to bad. Verse 12 says, I was at ease, but he hath broken me asunder into pieces. He has shattered me. And this was a true statement. He was at ease. Yes, he was offering his sacrifices. He had plenty of money, plenty of crops. I mean, I, he didn't have to work a day in his life because he had servants. Uh, you know, he could be teaching. He could be, you know, whatever he wanted to do. And he says, I was at ease and everything went wrong. <laughs> everything went wrong. He has shaken me by my neck. He has taken me by my neck and shaken me in pieces. This picture is of the animal who grabs hold of something. If you've ever seen a dog or, or something that kills something, they grab it by the back of the neck, they shake it, they throw it up in the air, and then when it comes down, they make sure it's dead or not dead, they pick it back up, shake it, and, and kill it. I've seen this happen. You know, I, I, huh? But they do it with their toys. They're practicing with their toys, trying to kill their toys. But this is the picture that he's given. You know, the animal, and I know the dogs aren't the only ones that kill this way, you know what I mean, but... You know, but he's saying, it feels like God is shaking me. He's grabbed me by the back and neck, shaking me to, to kill. And, um, and he says, and he just set me for his mark, you know, for his target. Now, this is literally, he's talking about God. He feels that this is God attacking him. Uh, but, you know, and his, he doesn't understand that God has given Satan leeway. Good news for us is that we know that when we go through hard times because of this book, we know that God has given Satan some leeway, which gives us a great grounding. No matter what we go through and going, God, I don't know why you're giving him that much leeway, but just help me because I know that you've put some limits on him. Satan always has limits. Even during the tribulation period, Satan has limits. Otherwise, Satan would kill the entire world. If he could do it, he would kill them because that would automatically take the entire world to hell. So during the tribulation period, he does not have a freedom to do what he wants. He still has limits. And that's during time when he has almost free reign. But he's not going to have full, full free reign. He's going to have limits. And Job is saying, you've set me as your mark. His archers compass me about... You know, so he's saying, God, you're taking shots at me from every direction. And this idea of compassing me literally means they're circling around him, taking pot shots at him. You know, he, that's how he's feeling. God, you're taking pot shots at me. Your archers are all around, and I'm being filled with arrows in all of this. He says, he cleaves my reins asunder. And this literally means to cut in half, to cleave. And the reins indicate the, the innermost being or the kidneys, the, the gut. He goes, I'm being cleaved in half at my deepest emotional point. All right. Uh, and he does not sp uh, spare. He pours out my gall upon the ground. So he says, God, I've been cut open and my internal organs are being poured out. Now, this isn't literal, but this is how he's feeling. You know, everything is falling apart. He breaks me with breach upon breach. And a breach is a hole in the wall. And he says, God, you are breaking me with multiple breaches to my, to my walls. Uh, he's talking about himself at this point because he has no walls to be, be broken. But he's going uh, over and over again. He says, God, you are just, would you just relent? I've got, you've already breached the walls. You know, just let it be done. And then he comes upon me like a giant, and the word literally is as a mighty, mighty warrior or a mighty man, rather than a giant. All right. So his whole back to whining a little bit. You know, God, I'm 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 just being beat up. I'm being cut up. I'm being shredded up. Uh, I've lost everything. My friends are really being mean to me, and they're they're making things even worse. And God, you're just not on my side. I don't understand why you would not be on my side during all of this. I don't feel your love. I don't feel your care. I don't feel your kindness. As a matter of fact, I feel like you're totally against me as well. And this is where we have to, like I've said, we need to make sure we know who the enemy is. 
Job's biggest problem right now is he's looking at God as his enemy rather than as his friend. Before this, he was looking at God as his friend. God has blessed me. God has done all these things. Now bad things are happening. And all of a sudden it is, God, you, 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 you hate me. You're my enemy. Same thing that happens in a marriage. You love, the, you love the person you get married to, and then all of a sudden things start getting tough, and you start looking, instead of the one causing the toughness, like Satan, you start attacking your spouse. Instead of loving each other, you start looking at how bad they're treating you, and how, not even how bad you're treating them, but how bad they're treating you, and you start looking at the other person as your enemy rather than the real enemy. And this can happen in a church at times. You know, pastors can get uh, so beat up sometimes that they're going, well, my, my congregation is just terrible. Well, let's not look at the, the congregation is not the enemy. The congregation is not the problem. Yes, the enemy may be using them, but they're not the problem. The government that we have that is so bad is not our problem. It's the enemy behind them motivating them to do all the bad decisions they're doing. And we need to understand all of this. When things come bad down on us, it's not the individual who's the problem. And we need to look beyond that and say there's an enemy behind them. Now, I'm not saying they're all listening directly to the enemy and they're doing bad things, but Satan is in behind moving all the pieces, motivating things to happen, and has these all these different pieces moving together. And... We need to understand that the enemy is not who we see. The enemy is the one moving the pieces behind the, behind the scenes and start reacting to the right enemy, praying against the right enemy, not the enemy we think we're seeing. And this is, whether it's in our abortion industry where we look at Planned Parenthood, the one behind it is the one manipulating Planned Parenthood. Yes, Planned Parenthood is bad and causes lots of abortions but they're motivated by much more into what they're doing. And so we need to make sure we're aiming at the right enemy. And this is very true, you know, if I'm looking at the problem, the problem isn't abortion, the problem is the attitude that is against God behind abortion. The attitude of adultery is not the sin of adultery, the problem, the, the attitude is what led to the fact that you want to commit adultery in the first place, which is not believing God's word. It always comes back to God's word. Do I believe God's word or not? And if I attack all the problems, I'm not attacking the root of the problem. And that's like going out and, and getting rid of your weeds by just chopping them off at the ground. All right, I got rid of all my weeds. Until next week when all the roots pop back up again. And too often we attack the, the, the upper structure of it and don't get to the roots. Job is there. He's not looking at the real problem at this point. He's saying, God is my problem. You know, God, you're my problem, instead of the enemy attacking. And we want to be very careful with that. Verse 15, I have sewed sackcloth upon my skin and defiled my, my horn in the dust. My face is foul with weeping, and, my eyelids is the and on my eyelids is the shadow of death. Not for any injustice in my hand, also my prayer is pure. O earth, cover not my blood, and let not my cry have and let my cry have no place. Also now behold, my witness is in heaven, and my record is on high. My friends scorn me, but my eye pours out tears unto God. O oh, that one might plead for a man with God as a man pleads with his neighbor. When a few years are come, then I shall go the way whence I shall not return. So here is Job saying, I have sewed, I have, I have uh, sewn together sackcloth upon my skin and defiled my horn, which is strength. When you see the word horn, it's usually strength or power. He goes, all my power is defiled. You know, I have no strength. I have sackcloth on. I've sewn together to cover my nakedness, my, my sackcloth. I'm, and sackcloth also is representation of repentance. He has nothing to repent for, but he's going, God, if there's something I need to repent, <laughs> I repent. I have no strength. Uh, he goes, my face is foul or literally reddened because of his tears. My, is, is red with weeping. He's been crying. You know, uh, and he says, you know, I, I look terrible. I know it. My eyes are red. My face is, is in, in bad place because of all 
the tears that I have done. He's in pain, he's lost everything, he's lost his family, and he is miserable. And he says, all you gotta do is look at me and I'm, and I'm miserable. And he says, my eye, and on my eyelids is the shadow, is it, and on my eyelids is with, literally, is the, with the shadow of death. He goes, I'm almost dead. He is feeling that he is on death's door. And he has been taken right to the edge. Satan was said, you know, was told you cannot take his life, but Satan is going to make him wish that he had, was dead. And maybe we've been there. You know, I have been at a time with gout pain that I wished I was dead because of all the pain that I was going through, and I just could not get over it no matter what I took, no matter what I did. And it's like, God, I'm tired of not sleeping. I'm tired of not having this. Would you just you know, do something? <laughs> this is where Job's at. You know, I, I'm right on the edge of death, God. I just, you know, I'm looking at the shadow of death. It's, it's right on around the corner, God. You know, can we just step into it and get through with it? Or would we take it away completely? Either way, he's okay. But he's, he says, I'm right there. And then he goes, as he's been doing before, not for any injustice of my hand, of my hands. He goes, I have not done anything wrong. Now, that's a pretty bold statement, you know, because, you know, all of us have a, a heart of iniquity. We all have things. But he says, God, I have been righteous. And that, remember, I keep bringing us back to this point. God's testimony of him, a perfect and upright man that hates evil. That doesn't mean that he was absolutely 100% perfect. But from God's perspective, God saw him as a righteous man that didn't deserve, from a human perspective, all that's happening to him. And that's what he keeps coming in and going, I don't understand why all this is happening. And I have not gone out. I didn't go out and rob a bank. I didn't go out and kill anybody. I didn't go out and sleep with my neighbor's wife. I, didn't, I haven't been telling lies. I don't know what's going on to cause all of this. Uh, and he could have gone down the long list of different things that could have been done wrong. And he goes, God, I have not done anything wrong. I don't understand. And he goes, and my prayer is pure or clean. I have been praying to you. I have been coming before you and this is what is really hard for us when we suffer and there doesn't seem to be any good reason for it and we're going God I don't know what's going on and this is why it's so important for us to understand the word of God and say God I'm just going to trust you we, like I said we, we have an advantage Job did not have the 66 books of the Bible he did not even have the first five books of the Bible he may have known the stories of Noah and Adam and Eve, and I'm sure he did you know, from, those things, from that point. Abraham might have been alive at this point in time so that he's kind of familiar with Abraham, maybe. But he doesn't know all the stories that we know. He doesn't know the faithfulness of God the way we know it. Now, he knows that God delivered Noah and whatever else happens. He knows that God has been delivering him. But he does not have the books of the Bible to stand on like we do. The only thing he has is his emotions and what he's been taught by the ancients. God loves you, and part of what he's been taught is if God loves you, you're blessed, and if you're not being blessed, you've done something wrong. That's what he knows. And that's not what is true in God's teaching him. There's still a lot of people that teach that today. Do good, get bled. Lots of churches teach it, unfortunately, and that's the sad thing is that prosperity gospel is dangerous because you, you try and try to try to please God and then bad things happen and you're going, well, I give up. And that's exactly what happens to them. When God brings a trial into their life like he did to Job, they give up because that's not what they're being taught in their church. And a matter of fact, if they go to their church, they get Job's friends. You must not have enough faith. You must have done something wrong. What was it that you did wrong? Otherwise, you'd have been blessed. They would never recognize that they're being Eliphaz and Bildad and... Yeah, based, based on, on what you... Um, instead of God. Yeah. yeah. As long as I'm being materially blessed, I'm, I'm in God's favor. And if I'm not being materially blessed, I'm not in God's favor. I must have done something wrong. And that's a sad way to live. Especially when we know that the rain falls on the just and the unjust and that God gives us trials. And I'm sure those churches would never preach on the book of Job. O earth, cover not my blood. Don't conceal my blood. I'm, I'm suffering. 
do not hide what I'm, what I'm, the injustice that I am suffering, and do not, and let my cry, my cry of distress, have no place or no standing place. In other words, don't let my cry just stay in one place. Let it be heard. Because I'm not hiding and I don't want my cry to be ignored. Because I have an issue. And from his point of view, he has a great issue. I've been righteous. I am perfect. I have not done anything wrong. And I am going to cry to the, cry to the heavens that I've done no wrong. And we're going to get to it when we get further on. He's basically going to say, God, I want to talk to you. God, come and talk to me so that I can defend myself. And, and I, I find that so funny because I've heard so many people, well, when I get to heaven, I'm going to give God a piece of my mind. I'm going to tell him what for. Uh, you know, when I get to heaven, I'm going to be just glad I'm there because of the grace of God. Because then I'm going to start understanding how bad I was and that I really didn't deserve to be there no matter what. But, and that's what Job does too when he gets there. You know, he says, I clamped my hands over my mouth. He was sorry he asked and got it. Uh, also now behold, my witness is in heaven and my record is on high. He goes, the evidence is in heaven. He goes, you all don't, aren't understanding it, but God knows that I am pure. The evidence is in heaven. God knows that I don't deserve this. He goes, I don't know why God's letting it happen, but the evidence is in heaven that I don't deserve this. Again, he's being kind of bold. He doesn't fully understand, but, you know, but again, God's testimony of it was that he doesn't deserve what he's going through. It's just the test that he was given to, to go through. He goes, my friends scorn or taunt me, and my eyes pour out tears unto my God, unto God. He goes, you know, and this is, he's talking to his friends. He goes, you're taunting me, you're giving this reproach, but my tears are before God. God knows. He's the one I'm talking to. I may be complaining, but God knows what's going on. And this is something that he's going through. And then he gives something very interesting. Oh, that one might plead for a man with God as a man pleads for his neighbor. Oh, that there would be a lawyer for me that could plead my case. All right? Because uh, he's basically said that I would have pled, pled somebody's case for them. What is he asking for? Even from his friends? Could any of you just give a prayer to God for me? Could you at least present my case before God? Intercessory prayer is so important. The first thing we should be doing for anybody that's going through a hard time is praying for them. And that they would soften, that their heart would soften, that God would break through. And this is what is so important to have somebody praying for you. And Job is asking, would just somebody plead before God? Would, could I have a lawyer go before God and plead my case? What are we told in the New Testament? Jesus is our advocate. He is our lawyer before the Father. When we are going through a hard time, he is the one pleading our case in heaven. Job doesn't know that he has somebody pleading the case for him because Jesus is there pleading his case for him. He doesn't recognize it. All he knows is he's looking at his friends being mean and nasty to him and said, can any of you plead the case? Would any of you go storm the courts of heaven with my case? I oftentimes am praying for people that are going through hard times. I'm praying for many of the lost people in this town that I go, God, what can we do to reach them? How can we reach them? God, I know this person's going through a hard time trying to make decisions. Would, can you reach down and touch their life? I may not have the answers. I probably don't have the answers. But I'm lifting them up before heaven. I'm pleading the case for them before, before the gates of heaven. And going, God, this person needs to know you. This person needs help in making this decision. This person's going through a really hard time with their health. Can you touch them? This person is really going through hard times in their belief. Would you touch them? This person's going through some really hard times with family and friends. Can you touch them? And I hope that people are praying for me. You know, because I'm the pastor and God, God has lots of things he's trying to teach me. But do we come before God and plead the case of those around us that are going through hard times? You know, when I look at certain people's lives and I'm going, God, why do some people go through such a hard time? Some of it, unfortunately, is because they never surrender. 
and they keep getting them to do the same problem over and over and over again because they're just not going to surrender. I know, did it for six years. Same problem for six years until I finally surrendered. Are we ready to surrender? We need people giving intercessory prayer for us when we're going through hard times. We need to look around us and say, who needs intercessory prayer? And lift them up. Because that was Job's request. Oh, that somebody would come before God and just plead my case as, as, if, as I would do for them in the courts, the court system. And then he goes, and when a few years are come, then I shall go the way whence I shall, re shall not return. He goes, and when I have my numbered years, I'm going to die. He really recognized his mortality. He knew that God had a number in mind for him. All of us are in a place where God has a number for us. He knows when we're going to die. When we were, before we were born, God knew when we were going to die. Kind of an amazing thing, you know. I'm not even born yet, and God already knows that I'm going to die in whatever year it is. He already knew that my dad was going to die last month, before he was born. He's like, okay, God, and Job is admitting that. God, you know, he goes, I only have a few more years. Now, he didn't realize this few more years were well over 100 years, but he goes, I just have a few more years, and then I'm going to die. But you know, that is really true. No matter how long we live, it's only a few years in comparison to eternity. And we really do need to get to this place where we understand what is this short life compared to eternity. And I've said this many times. If I go through pure hell in this world, knowing God and walking with God, what is, let's say I somehow managed to live to 200 years, and it was nothing but bad the entire time, but I trust God, what is 200 years compared to eternity? When I've been in eternity for a gazillion years, what would 200 years on earth be, a hard time on earth be? This is what Paul said, I've learned to be content with much or with little because what is it in comparison to eternity? What is any hard time in comparison to what's coming in the future? Now, nobody's going to live a life, com complete life of pure disaster and hell, but it really isn't anything when we look at it compared to what's coming. And this is where, what is our focus? What am I looking at? Am I looking at the misery and the, and the hardship of this world, or am I looking at the reward in heaven and living in heaven for eternity? And this is why the disciples were able to say, we thank God that we were found worthy to suffer. Because they really did. They're looking, you know, hey, we suffer here for a little while. We've given the gospel message and, and we're going to be in heaven the rest of, our, rest of our lives and we're going to be blessed. So what is this little tiny suffering that we go through in this world? Now people, well, you don't know what I'm going through. God knows what you're going through. What did Jesus go through? Jesus on the cross for our sake went through pain and suffering that nobody else has ever gone through. And he did it because of what he looked on on the far side, our salvation, our righteousness, our spending eternity in heaven with him because of what he did. And this is why, you know, I've told everybody on the wall is what is the value of one soul? What are we willing to pay for one soul to get to heaven? God, you want me to suffer so that one soul gets to heaven? As long as one soul gets to heaven, fine. I'll, I'll do whatever it takes. What does it cost? What is God going to put us through so that one person can come to heaven? And at that point, thank God, one person, one person got there. What is that value? What value do we put on one soul? So often we limit it. Well, God, only one person got saved. And that was the hard thing when we had our revival, you know, because I didn't see anybody get saved, you know, but who knows what actually happened. But I was disappointed because it didn't seem to do what I wanted to, wanted to do. And that was one of my trials. I failed it. You know, God, I don't know what it is you've done, but, you know, something came out of it. We presented the gospel. Something happened. I don't know what all happened. 
And God's never going to show us everything that happens until we get to heaven and say, well, this is why this happened. This is why this happened. This is why this happened. And when we see it from that side of it, it's going to go, oh, all right, now I understand. I understand now why this had to have happened. I understand why this was going to happen. And who knows what it was? We will never know. We may not even sure understand. Yeah, who knows? We might not care at that point. We might not care at that point. It's like, well, I've heard so many people, when I get to heaven, God, I'm going to ask God why. You're not going to care when you get to heaven, I don't think. I'm just, like I said, when I get to heaven, I'm just going to be glad to be there. Because at that point, I'm going to actually see my life and what I did through a different set of eyes. A righteous set of eyes that are going to say, oh, man, thank God I am here. Because look how bad I was in my flesh. I got, I'm here only because I'm covered by the righteousness of Christ, and now I'm in heaven. And the more we realize that, there is nothing good that we can do to earn heaven. Nothing. You know, even if we think we're pretty good, there is nothing good that we can do to get to heaven. And we need to really fully understand that we are only entering into heaven by the grace of God and the righteousness of Christ being placed on us. Period. And that doesn't matter whether you're, you're Hitler or, or uh, Bin Laden that's killed, you know, killed people just for the sake of killing, or if you've gone to church all your life and you've been a pretty good person who's not, not violated very many of the commandments. Because there's nobody that's perfect. And you know, everybody will look at you and say, well, that person definitely deserves to go to heaven. And God says they never accepted Jesus Christ. They're headed to hell. And this is why it's been said over and over again when two things will surprise us when we get to heaven. Who's there and who's not there. Because we're going to look at a lot of people going, well, I know that person should have been there. They were really good. I never saw, I never saw them lie. I never saw them get mad at anybody. I never saw them cheat. I never saw them do anything. And God says, yeah, but I did. God, why is that person in there? They, they were the meanest person I know and they're in heaven? Yeah, they accepted my son. We're going to be surprised. You know, we might not be, but you know, understand. From our perspective of this world, we'll be surprised who's there and who's not there. Because we look at what we, what we see. Lord, we ask you to bless this time. Help us to learn to trust you in all that we do. Help us to understand that you are, are, are who you are. Help us to learn to walk by faith in your word and to trust your word in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. Listening friends, where will you be when you die? We ask this question of a lot of people oftentimes, and the biggest answer we'll get is, I hope I will be in heaven. If hope is your answer, you don't know God, and this is a problem. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of the sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. If you do not know for sure that you're going to go into heaven, please, today, make your decision to follow him. It is simply just ask him, Lord, I am a sinner. Please come into my life and save me and make him your Lord. If you've said that prayer, let us know so that we can send you a new believers packet. You can contact us at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or even pastor at chloridebaptistchurch.com. Or you can just send us a regular letter at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona. 86431. Thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day.